The GG's community is in mourning following the tragic death of defensive lineman Francis Perron after the football team's game on Saturday. Perron's parents told Radio-Canada that Perron had cardiac arrest. He was pronounced dead at the hospital. Marcel Bellefeuille, the team's head coach, took to the mic on Thursday afternoon and spoke to the media about his team's plans going forward. We we are going to play this weekend in Kingston. Uh, we had we have gone through a process. We canceled all our football activities on uh, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. I uh, had discussions with the players uh, about what their desires were. Uh, I did tell the players that uh, it didn't matter to me whether we played another down of football this season. Uh, the most important thing was their mental health and how they were doing. And uh, you know, we, it, the process really came down to two things. And the first one was. Are you ready to play? Do you want to play? Will this help you? For each person, each player, it was a little different. Some players felt, you know, that this getting back on the field and after a few days of grieving was going to be a good thing for them. Uh, and then the second piece was, you know, I asked the players that, that knew Francis the best, what would Francis want? And uh, to a man, they felt like Francis would want them to play. That would be his wishes for the team. Sadly, for some of the veteran members of the defensive line, this was not the first time they experienced this kind of loss. In 2017, Loic Kayambe, who was 24 at the time, died in his sleep. Defensive lineman Michael Pozuda, a close friend to Perron, explained why he and his teammates are determined to play this weekend against Queens. He said this is what Francis would have wanted, and that after meeting as a group, they thought the best thing would be to go out and play in his honor this weekend. I just thought I'm very close to Frank, and um, he was a guy who um, he always gave 100% in everything, never took a rep off, never took a day off, so he would want us for us to go out there. In memory of Perron, the OUA will mandate all of its teams to wear a sticker on their helmet with Perron's number 99 for the rest of the season. Reporting for the Fulcrum Radio Show from Gigi's Field, I'm Charlie Dutiel. You're listening to the Fulcrum Radio Show. I'm your host, Damian Piper. The Fulcrum is the University of Ottawa's legendary English newspaper, produced on the University of Ottawa campus in downtown Ottawa, the capital city of the north on the Great Turtle Island. It's been one heck of a week. Broken trains going off the tracks... An election that cost Canadians more than $600 million. There's a lot to talk about. Today on the show, we've got an interview with Ottawa City Councillor Diane Deans. She gives us her thoughts on the ongoing issues with OC Transpo. You might know him from the English language debates. He was certainly one of the only people who said anything of substance on that night. Mr. Merrick McLeod is here. And we're going to bring you the story of how a group of scientists mapped woolly mammoth migration patterns. All that and a lot more. So with no time to waste, let's get started. But first, it's time for headlines. Today reading headlines, we have the Fulcrum's opinions editor, Sanjita Rashid, and Fulcrum staff writer, Shaley Shaw. Welcome to the broadcast. 
After Hurricane Larry descended on Newfoundland last weekend, the owners of Brown's Family Farms were relieved that their wild blueberries had survived the worst of the weather that brought damage across the province. But when they went to harvest the last of their crop on Saturday, they found that the blueberries had already been harvested. Likely using hand rakes, thieves came in the night and stole the harvest. The thieves also knocked down a sign and covered the field in tire tracks and footprints. Nancy White, one of the owners of the farm, said while it's difficult to determine the exact number of berries that were stolen, an estimate puts the loss at anywhere between 1,000 to 3,000 pounds. After nearly five months, Canada will begin allowing direct flights from India early next week. Transport Canada said the ban on all private and commercial flights will expire on September 26th at 11.59pm and that those travelling can expect additional COVID-19 measures. All travellers eligible to enter Canada direct from India will need to have proof of a negative COVID-19 test taken within 18 hours of departure. Anyone coming to Canada from India via an indirect route must obtain a negative test from another country other than India within the last 72 hours. Dr. Bonnie Henry, Provincial Health Officer of British Columbia, said that there are a number of young pregnant women battling COVID-19 in intensive care units across BC. Over 40 expecting mothers have been admitted to ICUs across BC since the start of the pandemic as vaccine hesitancy grows. Henry stressed that the real risk is catching the disease while unvaccinated, which is associated with higher rates of adverse birth defects, such as preterm pregnancies and stillbirths. A number of Edson, Alberta residents are in Edmonton ICUs following a party that's purpose was an effort to try and get COVID-19. The reason? To achieve natural immunity. A recent study has found that over a third of people who recovered from COVID-19 had no detectable levels of antibodies in their blood, leading to the conclusion that the immunity gained after vaccination is superior than any kind of immunity one believes they might have after getting infected with the virus. Just to reiterate, it is not a good idea to try and catch COVID-19 on purpose. A Vancouver man is worried about a new payment scheme introduced by his landlord that would see him pay more for his two-bedroom apartment. Wesley Harmer has rented at the 84 Sweet Holly Lodge building in Vancouver's West End neighborhood. After living in the building for five years, Harmer intended to renew his lease for a sixth. However, there are some major changes in the new lease. While the current rent sits at $2,025 a month, with utilities included, the new agreement has a lower rental rate, but demands Harmer open an account with APT Utility Corp., a private firm owned by Harmer's landlord. With fees starting at $530 per month in utilities paid to the landlord's private company, in addition to the rent Harmer is already paying. A homeless man in Pennsylvania is facing nearly seven years in prison. Joseph Sobolewski looked at the sign posted at an Exxon gas station that read two 20 ounce bottles of Mountain Dew for $3. So he jumped the queue and slapped $2 onto the counter and left with a single bottle. However, the price of a single Mountain Dew was $2.29 plus tax, bringing his total to $2.43. So after shorting the store $0.43, the police tracked him down and arrested him. Pennsylvania is a state with a three-strike rule, and Sobolewski had a record of non-violent crimes for more than a decade earlier. He once drove off without paying for a tank of gas, and then he was arrested for stealing a pair of shoes from a Kmart that cost $39.99 in 2011. Lithuania is banning Chinese smartphones and urging any of its citizens with a Chinese smartphone to throw it away immediately. This is in light of a new report by the National Cybersecurity Center, which tested 5G mobile phones from Chinese manufacturers. The report said that one Xiaomi phone had built-in censorship tools, while another Huawei phone had internal security flaws. Both companies have denied the allegations. 
Xiaomi's flagship, that Mi 10T 5G phone, was found to have software that would censor certain terms, like free Tibet, long-lived Taiwan independence, or democracy movement. Also included in the report was a flaw in Huawei's P40 5G phone, which put users at risk of cybersecurity breaches. Where the official Huawei application store, App Gallery, directs its users to third-party e-stores where many apps assessed by antivirus programs were determined to be malicious or infected with viruses. In cool animal news, an adult grizzly bear is dead, and a necropsy has revealed that the bear's wounds occurred when she attempted to attack a mountain goat in Yoho National Park in British Columbia. The carcass of the bear, that had not been dead for very long, was located near the top of the pass of a popular trail in Yoho National Park on September 4th. The forensic examination was conducted in Alberta at the University of Calgary. Thank you, Sanjita. Thank you, Shaley. If you're a transit user in the nation's capital, you've likely been plagued by overcrowded or out-of-service trains, bus route cancellations, and a whole lot more. We've been working on a story about the ongoing issues with Ottawa's new LRT system for a couple of weeks. There is no easy way for me to say this, but it would be putting it lightly to say that this past week has been anything short of a disaster for OC Transpo. The new light rail transit system has been open for more than a year, and the train has gone off the tracks. I wish that was some kind of metaphor, but it actually, very, very literally, happened this week. One of the other things that happened was the outcome of a trial of an Ottawa bus driver involved in the Westboro double-decker bus crash of 2019. The driver in that accident, which killed several transit riders, was acquitted on Wednesday. We reached out to OC Transpo for comment, but they said they were too busy to speak with us. We're going to bring you more on that story as it develops, and we're also going to fill you in on the ongoing debacle of the train derailments that keep happening, the most recent of which was this past Sunday. Fulcrum contributor Victoria Fang met with Ottawa City Councillor Diane Deans, and here's what the councillor had to say. You know, it, just to provide some context, the um, light rapid transit system is the greatest, biggest investment in the city of Ottawa's history. And, you know, it should be uh, something that every single Ottawan is, is proud of. And there have been incidents right from the testing and commissioning uh, to the early days of the service, everything from broken doors to broken wheels to, you know, uh, all everything that you could imagine has has been in play mm-hmm. um, and perhaps you know some people at OC Transpo might see a silver lining in COVID in that it actually significantly reduced um, the numbers of riders on the system on a daily basis and perhaps allowed uh, some opportunity or some time uh, to get the kinks out of this system. What I have observed and what some of my colleagues have observed is that even though they're, you know, they have not been able to deliver the service that the taxpayers in Ottawa got paid for and that they've continuously been running uh, less service than than uh, our expectations uh, under the contract agreement. The problems just continue mm-hmm. and that's the frustrating part. 
August 8th, the Confederation Line uh, LRT was shut down for five days after a minor derailment caused by a loose axle bearing. On the 9th, 19 double-decker buses were removed from the road for investigation following uh, one of the buses ending up in the ditch with a steering issue. Mm-hmm. And it went on and on and on. And um, as a member of council who's accountable to the public, I really feel that uh you know, we're a, we're a public body, we're using public funds, and we, we, our expectation should be that our business is conducted in public. What are your next moves and hopes for the OC Transfo to uh, ensure like more safety and uh, reliability? Yeah, I'm not a member of the Transit Commission. I am a member of Ottawa City Council. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, believe that this is, a, um, public transit is, is a fundamental service in our city and we need to be publicly accountable for it and uh, i cannot move that mountain between um, the members of um, uh, uh, mayor watson's inner circle who support him and the transit commissioner um, alan hubley every step of the way um if they don't want to provide public information they just don't and they get away with it so you know it i think it's uh, really beyond me it's up to the public it's up to students at ottawa u it's up to you know elderly users of the system it's up to families it's up to everyone to express their concern and to demand change and the public accountability you know there should not be a veil of secrecy mm-hmm. around our public transit system. This is a publicly funded system with taxpayers' dollars. It's a system that everyone can use in the city of Ottawa. It should be widely available. It has to be safe and reliable all of the time, and it's not. And the public needs to demand better. And that's what I've been doing. That's what Councilor McKinney has been doing. That's what some of my other colleagues have been doing. Sarah Wright Gilbert over at the uh, Transit Commission has been doing. But we can't break that brick wall on our own mm-hmm. of uh, secrecy that uh, that they have put up. They, they don't want the public to know what's happening with the system. Mayor Jim Watson said in an interview uh, around all of this a couple of weeks ago, you can look it up, it's, it's public, he said, we had one bad week. And I'm thinking, are you living in the same city that I'm living <laughs> in? Because we have had way more than one bad week. We've had a system that has not been working properly since the day we took it over. Right, because last year it was also when it just pretty much started it wasn't going so well with the weather and um, been experiencing those as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think, you know, that's the thing about transit riders. They know, transit riders know, the people that use the system all the time know, you know, the mayor can speak into a microphone and say the system has been working perfectly well for the last year and a half, but every single rider knows that's not true. If you watch the English language leaders debate for the Canadian federal election, you might have heard this man. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome to the show, Mr. Merrick McLeod. Merrick, thank you for taking the time to speak with me. Of course. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Now, uh, you're a student at the University of Ottawa. What are you studying again? It's a uh, joint degree in public administration and political science. 
I don't. Uh, real shocker, eh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it, it certainly fits the bill, right? Um, what about uh, how do you like pandemic learning so far? Um, it's just something you get used to, right? Like, you just got to do it. <laughs> you know, what's the alternative, right? Yeah, I, I, I'm in the same boat, so I totally <laughs> get it. Now, everybody knows you now. What's it like to have this newfound fame? I was actually kind of laughing to myself last night um, because my conception was after the election, you know, that was it. The 15 minutes is over. But I actually got a, a message request last night from like a 15 year old who said he rewatched the debate and he found my account, right? And sent me a message. I was like, oh, maybe I was wrong about that. Um, I have to say, though, my family and friends liked it a bit more than I did just because, you know, I, I didn't mean to become like famous, right? I just asked a question. That was. Uh, <laughs> all i did but uh you know everyone else was like oh my god like i knew him right um yeah so especially the university friends there yeah they uh they loved it oh i i can imagine i i I certainly loved it everybody i know loved it now of course at the debate you asked the party leaders just how is it that you could trust them or how is it that you could trust and respect the federal government after 150 years of abuse and lies to Indigenous people, were you happy with the message or the response that any of them gave you? Not really. Um, you know, Trudeau, he said the right stuff, but, you know, his past six years as prime minister, they don't really follow what he said. Um, O'Toole, I was very hesitant of. Um, you know, he's gone on kind of lecture circuits where you know, he said residential schools was primarily a tool of education. Uh, you know, we know that's not true. One in five uh, students that went to residential schools, the other went missing or they're dead. So, you know, you don't see that in any other kind of school, right? You know, a fifth of U Ottawa students, they don't just end up dead you know, over their year uh, at the school. So, you know, out of the main two, I was very disappointed. I did like Anime Paul's response, but, you know, the Green Party they're not in a good place. Uh, it showed last night. I mean, um, they lost about half their caucus, um, but I guess they gained one in, uh, where was it, Kitchener Center? So it evens out. But uh, yeah, overall, I was pretty disappointed. Well, now that the election's over, what are your thoughts on the outcome? Um, it, it seems like you know, I'm going to use in quotations here, like the left, right? The liberals, NDP, blog, uh, they've gained seats, right? So hopefully going forward, that means they have uh, a better ability to get legislation passed. And in that, you know, reconciliation, I really hope that the NDP and the bloc kind of team up and really push the prime minister, uh, you know, Trudeau, to begin these processes. You know, he said the right stuff. Let's start working on that, you know, get it done. Hopefully he, you know, uses the full years he, uh, four years he has and fully utilizes them. But, um, you know, I'm hesitant. So I'll, I'll see what happens. And on that note, I wanted to ask you about reconciliation and what does that mean to you? What does that look like? Uh, well, you know, a big thing that First Nations talk about is sovereignty. And, the way we look at it is being self-reliant. We don't want to be reliant on the federal government. You know, we don't want to be reliant on funding programs, on services. You know, 
ideally, we'd want to be able to run our reserves independently of, you know, really almost no outside help. But the problem is the way it's set up is it requires the federal government to be in pretty much every aspect of governance. So reconciliation really means handing over that autonomy, but it's a gradual process. You can't just do it with one stroke of a pen. So, you know, it's going to take time. And that means, you know, handing over water treatment facilities and making sure that we have training for those to run it. You know, you can build a facility, but if nobody knows how to run it or maintain it, it's useless. And, you know, that's happened on several reserves, especially up here in Northern Ontario. Um, It means making sure that we have equal opportunities, um, you know, making sure that we have uh, economic growth on our reserves, which... You know, a lot of our reservations, they don't have the same job opportunities as many other parts of the country. So it's going to require a lot, but I really hope over the next four years that we start to see that progress being made. And is there anything else that you'd like to say or anything that's come to mind? Um, Just a chibi gwetch for, you know, everything that everyone's done. Um, I've loved the messages. Um, any that I've received personally over Instagram and uh, Facebook Messenger, I've reached out, I've reacted to, and you know, gave my own personal thank you. But uh, you know, to anyone else that may be listening, that I don't know was uh, not as interested in reaching out, or was just a kind of passing thought, you know, Chimi Gwetch for all the uh, good thoughts and prayers, and uh, you know, I, I couldn't have asked that question without your support. And so one last question, as an Ottawa U student who's currently <laughs> learning pandemic style from the Sioux, uh, when is it that we're actually going to see you in Ottawa? Uh, you know, I, I was hoping to get down there this semester, but, um, uh, you know, I, I was kind of banking on uh, uh, one of my friends, you know, letting me co-rent with them, but uh, no, they found someone else. So. Um, at the very soonest, maybe this winter. If not, then uh, next year, hopefully. <laughs> well, we all can't wait to see you here. Uh, thank you very much, Merrick. All righty. Thanks for having me on, Damien. Selma El Haj is one of our many talented staff writers here at the Fulcrum. On Wednesday, while Ontario's new vaccine restrictions came into place, Selma and I went down to the Rideau Centre to ask people what they thought about the new restrictions and the upcoming vaccine passports. Here's what they had to say. I'm in the Rideau Centre with staff writer Selma El Haj. Selma, what are we doing here? We're going to ask some strangers what they think of the vaccine passport, and we'll see some of the responses. Awesome. This is Selma. Nice to meet you. Hi. Hi. I'm Damien. Nice to meet you, Damien. Uh, can we get your names first? Adriana Saronin. And I'm Paige Benson. Okay, so today the vaccine passport kind of came out, all the new regulations, your proof of ID, and then your vaccine receipts. What do you think of that? Is it something like you're kind of willing to go through? Yeah. Yeah? Sure. Yeah. It definitely is something that I'm willing to go to through. However, I forgot today, so I don't have my wallet on me. So I couldn't get into the cafeteria because I had my like vaccine passport because I'm, I'm double vaccinated. But I didn't have my ID on me, so I couldn't get in. So we had to find a place to eat. So that's a little bit of a hassle, but I'm totally for the vaccine passport. 
good because there's a lot of people who are not really for it and they think it's kind of like a hassle or they don't want to give in like their information. What would you tell those people who want to walk into establishments without their vaccine passport per se? It's definitely for like the greater good, in my opinion. As though, yes, it can be a hassle. Like today, I didn't get into the cafeteria because I totally forgot. But that's my own doing. Like it's my fault. It's the first day, but it's just life. And this is the new reality of today's day and age. Yeah, I think it's also just important that we make sure that we're following the regulations and making sure if it makes everyone safe, then like that's the most important thing, right? Uh, do you worry that it's something that you, vaccine passports are like giving out your information or do you consider it as like a health card? It's like the same kind of get things you're giving out to the government. Yeah, like we're already, that, all that information is already on our like driver's license and passport and health card and all that stuff. So it's not really anything extra than what the government already knows. So. And it's not like we don't get ID'd when going into like other places as well as um, we've always had a vaccine passport. Even to go to school in middle school, we had to have certain vaccines or we weren't able to go to public school. So it is definitely have some bigger stigma just because COVID is such a big thing and it's quite new. However, a vaccine passport isn't new to Canadians. That's all. Thank you so much for your time. No problem. So this is regarding the vaccine passports. You know, the yes. new rules are coming out today. Yes. With the vaccination. Uh, what do you think about that? I think that's a very good idea to protect everybody. <laughs> Absolutely. And what do you think of like those who per se don't want to show their ID or receive the vaccination? Well, I'm not sure what can be done about people who don't want to. People who cannot for medical reasons obviously shouldn't do it. But uh, for people who don't want to, I don't know. <laughs> thank you. Can we get your name? Martha. Martha. Okay. Well, thank you, Martha. <laughs> okay. Well. Have a good day. So what's your name again? Salma. Salma? Salma? And your name? I'm Damien. Damien? Yeah. His what name is Lay. Lay. And I'm Zach. Okay, so today the vaccine passports came out, new regulations, you have to show your proof of ID when you walk into the establishment and the vaccination receipts. Um, what do you guys think of that? Uh, I'm glad that it's here just because it's kind of a um, frustrating situation when you're, because I work at a cafe so when we have customers who don't really respect the whole laws, it's hard to tell them no because it's like it's us saying no, right? But then with a vaccine passport, now it's like somebody else saying no for us. So. Yeah, it's definitely a necessary thing. Uh, it's been how many years since the start of the pandemic? And, um, you know, you want to say that the majority of people will do the right thing, but sometimes a little bit of a pseudo-authoritarian kind of ruling is necessary, especially something like this. So that's all right. So for someone who doesn't, let's say, want to show their identification when they walk to an establishment, what would you tell them? Um, that's a good question. Identification or passport? Well, now it's identification, but then like from October 15th, it will be your passport. Okay. Well, um, I would say that when you're out in a public place, usually you are able to be photographed. Anything in a public place is open for the public. So, I mean, I don't really see it as a realistic excuse against vaccine passports um, or mandates or anything like that. Uh, I think it's just causing more kind of confusion and disarray by doing that. Uh, well, you know, because it's such a clear-cut government legislation i would just tell them you know it's beyond our control and let them know that they're probably going to have to leave the establishments uh, 
Yeah. And also, I'd like to add, like, everybody has freedom, but when the freedom entrenches on other people's safety and health, it's not necessarily a right in that sense. So. That's American. He feels very strongly about this. <laughs> so a lot of people consider it like showing your vaccine passport or your proof of identification is kind of giving up to the government like all of their rights. And what would you, you know, say to those people to kind of calm them down? <laughs> well, um, to calm them down, I... Uh, yeah, that would be generous because to reassure them, I mean... I think that these kinds of mandates are occurring simply because the problem hasn't been under control. So unless we find a solution, you can either be part of the solution or part of the ongoing problem. Um, and I, th I personally want to be part of the solution and look back 10 years from now and know that I did all the right things and followed all the regulations that the professionals are putting out in front of us. And for me, like the resistance towards vaccinations and like the proper contact tracing is a it's harder for me to justify the resistance just because we have vaccinations in school already. We've had certain limitations of our rights anyhow. So this does seem to be kind of a, you know, a misplaced resistance. Yeah. Do you think that uh, businesses will start to lose customers now that there's kind of, let's say, anti-vaxxers or people who want to get, show their identification or, you know, prove a vaccine passport, per se. Well, that's kind of tough, right? Because how many businesses have closed because of the pandemic versus how many customers will they lose that don't want to be in there? I think that's a, it's a vocal minority, but it's definitely does not outweigh the amount of customers that have been lost because of non-regulations and things like that. From a, from a business perspective, I don't see there being any substantial loss from just going with a vaccine passport laws. Thank you so much. For no your problem. Time. Awesome, uh, awesome. No problem, you guys. I'm Damien, by the way. Okay, I'm Nina. I'm Salma. Okay, hi. So this is regarding the new vaccine passports, the regulations that came out today. Yes. Um, you give in your proof of ID, your two receipts of a proof of vaccination to walk into the establishment. Well, the, the issue here is that I live on the Quebec side. And we have the same kind of uh, thing going, and I'm, I'm all for it. You're all for it? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Have you encountered those who were not for it, and what would you tell them, really? Um, not really in my milieu, but uh, there are people around that I do know that have gone really to another area, and um, we're just not on the same page. So they want to meet me up at restaurants and things like that, but I won't go, because they won't be masked, and they haven't had either shot. Has that affected your personal relationships? Uh, well, with them, it was it was Kimsi Kamsai, you know, he's different than I am. But um, all my family, extended family, I have a little granddaughter who's six months old today. So to be sure, I'm making sure everybody has their shots and stays within the two-week time frame after the shots and all this. So I'm fussy about it. Do you consider a proof of vaccination, vaccine passports to be something, private information that you give up to the government? Uh, I, they already have it. They already have it, either on a federal level, definitely on a provincial level. So, they have it. So it's not infringement on your freedom whatsoever? No, 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 no. There's other things to be free about. <laughs> I'm older than you guys, so I can say that. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. You so Good luck with your survey. Now, when I say that the fulcrum is full of talented writers, 
It really is an understatement. This is why I'm very excited to introduce you to our science editor, Emma Williams. Hey, Emma. Hey, Damien. How's it going? I'm well, thank you. So tell me about this interview. Yeah, so this is with Clément Bataille. He's a professor here at the Department of Earth Science, and he co-led an international study, and they basically were able to track the movements of this 17,000-year-old mammoth. Oh, wow. And how did they do that? So they used a strontium isotope and you know, AI to essentially predict its movements across a given landscape. Oh, wow. That's cool. Well, I can't wait to hear it. Yeah, thank you. So okay. we had this idea for a long time to try to trace back movements of this extinct mammoth. So we were just waiting to find the right tusk, basically. <laughs> uh, this is what was uh, the idea. So there's tusk everywhere in museums, but what we wanted was a tusk that was fairly recent in terms of age. And so we found one that was 17,000 years ago, which is relatively close to when mammals got extinct, which is 12,000 years ago. Okay. Uh, so we were really trying to find a young tusk. Uh, we were also trying to find a male because we wanted, uh, we knew that male probably moved more. We wanted also to find a place, uh, a task that was found at a place where we knew it was in situ, that she had not been moved okay. by like water or by stuff. So that's all those characteristics for this task uh, were fulfilled. And so we decided on that one. How do you know if it's male? Based on the task? No, no, that's not based on the task. It's based on the genetics. So okay, on what's the nice about this uh, task is that they preserve very well some proteins and some uh, okay. pieces of DNA in them. So you can send that to a lab in California, in this case, with Beth Shapiro, who is, you can check her YouTube videos if you want. Beth Shapiro is a very famous person. Okay. Um, she's very fun also to listen to. She, she does a talk about how to clone a mammoth, which is, <laughs> which is very funny to listen to. She's, she's very... Uh, she's very great. So anyway, she, you send the pieces of the tusk to her and she can extract pieces of DNA and look at uh, those pieces of DNA and reconstruct if it's a male or a female. So that's how you figure that out. And for the age, we use a radiocarbon lab here. It's an yeah. instrument we use for dating things. Yeah. Uh, dating, um, dating like young things in the, oh, young, less than 50,000 years old. Okay. Uh, so this mammoth was in that range. Uh, so we could date it fairly clearly at like 17,050 year ago from present. So how how does isotope mapping work? How were you able to like map its movements? So you know what's an isotope? Isotope different form of an element. An element exists under different form with different number of neutrons. So carbon can be carbon-12, carbon-13, carbon-14. All of those are isotope of carbon, different form of carbon. They have the same properties than carbon, but they have slightly different masses because different number of neutrons in their nucleus. Okay. okay. And so what's interesting about isotope is that they vary on the landscape predictably, depending on the type of isotope. But in our case, we were interested in strontium, and strontium has different isotopes that vary on the landscape in abundances, based on geology. So if you find yourself here in Ottawa, uh, you are in a more carbonate sedimentary type of geology, has a different strontium isotope signature than if you are in Gatineau, where the rocks are much older, much more metamorphic. Uh, that's why we have the hill there in the Gatineau Park, because mm -hmm. they are just much. So 
if you go from where Gatineau to uh, Ottawa and you were a human being or, or a deer and eating on the landscape and you were growing an antler, this antler will pick up the signal of strontium that the grass has in Ottawa okay. and then as he's moving uh, across the valley and moving to the Gatineau Hill, this strontium isotope will change to the isotope that you have in the, the vegetation in uh, the Gatineau Hills, which will be different geology. So the geology, the underlying geology, give its strontium isotopic signature to the local ecosystems and then it's transmitted to animals that roam on this landscape. Okay. And so what's nice about the mammoth is because it's growing continuously every day, uh, this tusk is like a GPS. Basically, yeah. it's recording uh, wherever it's going in terms of geology uh, along this tusk. And so, yeah, so that's, that's how the principle works. The big work we had to do was to, to create this map that predicts strontium isotope across our study area. And to do this, what we did is we used rodent teeth. So what's nice about rodents is that they're local. They don't move very much. They stay in one specific location. So they represent the local strontium isotope of the ecosystem at like one, kilo one square kilometer, if you want. Okay. So we measure the strontium in their teeth. And we do that for hundreds and hundreds of rodents all across the landscape. That give us a night data set that has rodent teeth measured in different geology, different temperature condition, different uh, topographic condition. And then we can use artificial intelligence to try to create a map that predicts how this strontium is varying across the landscape using maps of geology, maps of topography, maps of temperature, maps of whatever you're interested in and that you think strontium isotope might vary uh, with. So we have this, um, yeah, this, at the end we have this map predicting strontium isotope in ecosystem across a study area. So the idea of the rodents is simply that, you know, if you take a big animal, so you might be moving across the landscape all over the place. Okay. Um, and so you don't really know where, uh, where, it's, where it's coming from. Right. So you need an animal uh, or a plant whichever that's local that represent the local signature of the strontium isotope okay right so that's the idea of the rodent you measure strontium in those rodent and they represent the strontium isotope of its of one local area okay yeah so and if you have that all across so if you measure that in hundreds and hundreds of places all across the landscape then you have a data set of strontium isotope in ecosystems across alaska and to create a map from there you use artificial intelligence and other maps of geology, of temperature, of uh, topography to just try to extend from the point data to across the entire landscape. Okay, so what you're describing then is sim it's geolocation then? Yeah, I mean, the idea of geolocation is that you, you, you have a tissue, like in this case a tusk, yeah. that you have like signals along this tusk of uh, strontium or whichever isotope you're interested in. Uh, so we combine those isotopes together to just try to now have more constraint on where this individual might have been at different step along okay. its life. And then we also know the location of death of the individual, which was kind of an anchor point. So what we could do is like start to try to reconstruct the path of this individual from its point of death and try to backtrack its life movement from that point so that's limit, and why it's, it's, it's interesting is that it limits the number of possible area where you can uh, have him going because you know that this individual is not going to travel more than like, he's not going to cross the entire Alaska in one week. 
-hmm. So if you know where he's dead, you know that the next the next step he's going to take is going to be fairly close to where he was dead, mm -hmm. and then the next step would may might be a little further away and so on. But it just kind of helps you constrain uh, kind of the area where you might have been, and so limit the number of isotope region that you have to look out. Yeah, you also know that the mammoth is not going to climb across like big mountain range or glacier or thing like this. So that's what the more geolocation part is. Okay. It's just trying to reconstruct tracks. At the end, we, we don't have only one track. We have a bunch of possibilities of tracks. Okay. But they all show similar sort of uh, mobility patterns and, and history for the mountains. Okay. And so that's what we use then to just draw bigger conclusions. So were you able to like date through time as well, through space and time? like? You knew at what time he was in certain places? So that's a good question, and that's not given by any isotope, it's given by the tusk. Okay. So the tusk is growing in a very known way. It grows by adding layers okay. of uh, appetite through time, so it's basically like a tree ring. If you look yeah. at, if you, look at uh, if you slice it, so we slice this, uh, this tusk, and if you look at it, you see kind of a series of piled up uh, ice ice cream cones. Mm. It looks like a series of ice cream cones and each cone is will be one day of the life of the mammoth. Wow. Okay, so there is like this tiny, tiny, but I mean, it's still two meter long. Mm -hmm. So it's not that tiny, but you can see day by day, basically the, the full, like each day you have one incremental layer of, uh, of the of the trust that's built. Okay. So that's how we dated things. Uh, okay. We dated things like we know the time of death and then from the time of death, we can calculate the number of days back backward. Well, when you have a big change, well, because this mammoth needed such a big range to actually transmit his genes to different herds and maybe adapt to different climate uh, variation, like let's say like you're in the tundra, so there's not very much food. And so let's say one, one year it's dry and so there's not enough food in one particular region. So this mammoth needs to move in totally different region and uh, long distances. Well, if you start to move from a climate of the last glacial maximum that's very cold, uh, but allows the entire Alaska to be tundra. Tundra is like no trees. If you remember the course also, it's no trees. It's just like lichen, grass, thing like this. But if you start to warm up, like what happened at the last glacial maximum, what's going to happen is that your boreal forest that was more south is going to start to migrate north and cover half of Alaska or wow. three quarter of Alaska. And so what happened with this is that basically it blocks, it creates barrier to the mobility of those big animals. And so he cannot anymore just go to one place to another very easily, transmit his gene as easily, escape difficult conditions as easily. He's kind of stuck into like refuges mm -hmm. uh, where there's not enough movement possible. So that's what we're trying to understand here. We're trying to see like how does the characteristic, the mobility characteristic of this particular species, how they are interacting with for production, how they are interacting for foraging, uh, his kind of influencing why they might have been extinct and how this might be applicable to just think about just African elephants, mm -hmm. right? So, or any other big species that exist uh, and, and move a lot on the landscape. But right now we're putting elephants in those uh, kind of parks, preventing them to actually uh, have this big diversity of zones where they can escape like uh, dry, dry times or, mm -hmm. um, so is it a good thing? Is it, is it, are we doing conservation the right way today with like a changing climate? Has, has like, there's been like a recent studies that show that African elephants have been moving uh, in the last two or three years much more because there's been a warmer climate, 
trial conditions. So they've just been moving all over the place on this little park there because they're trying to find a new region where it's still okay for them to just uh, to just do the right thing. But maybe the park is just too small in comparison with uh, what these elephants need to actually survive. So this is a sort of questions of uh, big scale ecology. We know that humans have interacted with those creatures in the past, but we don't want to uh, see elephant. Uh, well, we don't want our kids to see elephant the same way as we are seeing mammoths, really, because you know maybe elephants will be extinct in like 50 years. But what we want is just those iconic species that have been extinct to serve as kind of kind of a wake up call to think about all these other species that are becoming extinct. Okay, well, thank you so much for meeting with me. It's been quite a week for the GGs, and there's no one better to tell you about that world than the Fulcrum Sports Editor, Jasmine McKnight. I'll be the first to admit that this was not the best week in GG Sports. Let's just jump right into this week's scores. On Saturday, the football team suffered a disappointing 11-10 loss to the University of Toronto. And on the same day, the women's rugby team fell to the defending champions, Laval, 8-7. On Sunday, the men's rugby team fought hard, but couldn't snag the win over the Concordia Stingers, who remain undefeated this season, after the 30-17 and 17 battle. Sprinkling some winning energy into the weekend was the Gigi's lacrosse team, who topped the Ravens 11-6 in their first game of the season. They're back in action at home this Saturday against Queens. The U of O baseball team had a busy weekend in Montreal. On Saturday, the team split with Concordia and dropped two to the north for a 1-3 weekend. The team will be back on the diamond against Carleton, a rematch of their home opener. The G's will be looking to tie things up with the Ravens tonight. Things are only getting busier and more exciting for Gigi's teams, and there's lots on the go this coming week. On home turf, the women's soccer team is finally returning to the field against York University, the team that ended the Gigi's path to the national championship tournament two years ago. Still, the last time we saw the soccer team in action they literally won a world championship. This game will be on Saturday at 2 p.m. Taking the field afterwards is the men's rugby team hosting Montreal at 5.30. The football team will be making a road trip to Kingston to face off against Queens at 3 p.m., a game that surely means more to the team than just football, and the GGs will be keeping Francis Perron in their minds. While Laval proved that they're still the best team in the country after so long, the Gigi's women's rugby team is going to be out for revenge in a rematch on Laval turf at 4 p.m. Gigi's teams are definitely looking to turn things around and put some wins in the book. I'm incredibly excited, not only for the teams I mentioned before, but because I'm going to be putting on my Gigi's jersey and hitting the field this Sunday. Both the men's and women's ultimate teams are hosting teams from Queens and Carleton in a battle for a bid to Division I Nationals taking place in October. I'm sure that's a lot to take in, but I'm here to make sure you don't miss any of it. See you all next week.
Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to everybody involved in this week's show. Our editor-in-chief, Mr. Charlie Dutille. The one take only, Sanjita Rashid. The best skateboarder on the team, Shelly Shaw. Could not have done this one without Victoria Fang and Amira Benjamin. Special shout out to the one, the only, Selma Al Haj. And because you can't mess with science, we got Emma Williams. You can't play ball here because this is Jasmine McKnight's court. Thanks to Haley Otten, we're on Apple now. Music and sound design by Cameron Rankin. You've been listening to the Fulcrum Radio Show. I'm your host, Damian Piper. See you next week. <laughs>